to Ephesians chapter 3, which can be found if you're using your pew Bibles on page 1160. So it's Ephesians chapter 3. And so in the last few weeks, as I've mentioned already, we've been talking about the church. As I said last week in particular, Ephesians is really the book about the church par excellence. It is really the New Testament epistle that I would say more than any other gives us a full-fledged doctrine of the church. It helps us to understand what the church is, or rather who the church is, and what the church is called to do. And we've seen along the way the various themes that I've been pointing out, which I will sort of redundantly get to each week, just to keep them in your minds. The theme of the gospel, the theme of Jew-Gentile hostilities, and the theme of spiritual powers of darkness. All of which, once again, coalesce in our text this morning, as we'll see. And over the past few weeks, we've seen how the church is God's masterpiece. His great work, his poema, which is his, his beautiful work, through which he displays his power and his grace and his glory to the world and to the the spiritual world, to angels and demons. And they are seeing it and they are watching God's power unfold right in front of them through the church. And so the church is made up of those who used to be, as we saw a couple weeks ago, dead in their trespasses and sins. It's also made up of those who were Gentiles, which is something that we'll be digging into more this week as we turn to the words of Ephesians 3. This was a marvelous thing in the first century that was difficult for early Christians to fully wrap their heads around. How God's promises and his covenant could now be included or inclusive of Gentile people. And as is so often the case with Paul's letters, what we read here in Ephesians 3 flows seamlessly from Ephesians chapter 2. Again, it's helpful to remember that it's not written with chapter numbers. It's not written with verse numbers. And and so chapter 2, the end of that chapter, flows really seamlessly into chapter 3. So we're going to be still talking a bit this morning about that idea of the inclusion of Gentiles in God's covenant people. And so one simple takeaway we can make here uh, will, I think, give some motivation to us as we turn to Scripture this morning will be by noticing that racial division has always existed. This is something that should motivate us as we read. How does the gospel overcome racial division? How does it help us to overcome this great obstacle? And not only a great obstacle, but this great problem, this great moral evil. Racial division has always been a problem since the beginning, uh, since Genesis chapter 11, of course, with the Tower of Babel, where the languages of the people of the earth were confused such that they were scattered and became divided. And as a divided divided race, I think we find it all too easy to think so highly of our own tribes, of those who look like us, those who act like us, those who think like us, and to exclude then those who are different than us. And so this is something that was still the case in the first century. Even though they had been brought together, these Jews and Gentiles in the city of Ephesus, they were still struggling, especially the Jews, to overcome how this was the case, how this could possibly be happening. 
And it's understandable, isn't it? It's understandable to think about the Jews' struggle in some ways. They were Abraham's offspring. They were the ones who all the prophets had come from. All the prophets had prophesied of Israel's glory and Israel's uh, success. And so to them, something was very strange about this whole thing of Gentiles now coming into their midst. They'd always been trained to think of Gentiles as pagan worshipers, as unclean, and now these Gentiles were coming in. And so they were recognizing that, in fact, these Gentiles were a part of their church, but they were still struggling to understand how that was the case. And so, as Paul will say this morning in this morning's text, This was a mystery to them, a mystery that needed a little bit of explaining. And so let's read the passage this morning before we go any further. So brothers and sisters, hear the word of the living God from Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit and your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. 
When I was a high schooler, many, many years ago now, it seems, I was a kid who was known amongst all of my friend groups for having two gadgets. Two gadgets that you would have never caught me without. Gadgets that I was in many ways addicted to. These were my iRiver H320 and my Sony Ericsson W810i. I still remember these names because I, as a young person, did a lot of research on discovering exactly what the best gadgets would be. The first one, the iRiver, is an MP3 player. You guys remember those? And the second one was my cell phone My I got in my senior year. I had had cell phones before this, but this one was the best cell phone, I thought. And so now it's funny to look at these. Even on this screen, I feel a little bit of a nostalgia welling up within me as I think back about these gadgets. Uh, I wanted to be different. I didn't want to be like everyone else. In a world sort of uh, awash with Apple iPods and with Motorola Razor cell phones, I knew I wanted to be a step above. I wanted to have things that were a little bit more advanced than everything else out there. And this deep aversion to the typical cool devices that everybody else had um, sort of uh, created in me a, a, a hatred, you might say, a disdain for anything Apple. I especially hated iPods, and I wanted nothing to do with them. I was a rebel, I guess you might say. And I sort of thought that these iPods, you know, they would never go away, but that would be the end of, of Apple. That would be the one success that they would really have. But as we all know, in July 2007, Apple released one of the most groundbreaking, game-changing devices ever. The original iPhone. And I can, res- I can still remember the first time I held an iPhone in my hand. My friend Connor got one late in our senior year of high school, and I can remember thinking, this looks nice, but it's really strange and really weird to use. I'm not sure it will actually catch on. I thought, this is a bit weird. I, I actually prefer, I thought to myself, I prefer my two devices. Keep things you know, separate. That would be better. But as it turns out, I wasn't alone. And there were actually many at the time who, leading up to the release of the original iPhone, said that it would, it would not be a successful device. And so one company, The Guardian, who you may know is a British newspaper, they had an article titled this, iPhone, set to struggle. Another one, TechCrunch.com, who was a... a well-known reviewer of technology, they wrote this, we predict the iPhone will fail. Marketwatch.com said simply, Apple should pull the plug on the iPhone. And thestreet.com, a lesser-known website, but I love this line from them. They say, but beyond all the i-hype and i-mania, let's get one thing clear. The iPhone isn't the future. It isn't a revolutionary mobile device ushering in a new era. Sure, in the summer of 2007, all of these doomsday predictions may have certainly seemed accurate. The iPhone was seen to be too expensive, too frail. People said that the screen was very easily broken. It was too different. It was just a step so far away from what was normal that it would be too far for people to go. And worst of all, people were saying that it was unnecessary. 
It was unnecessary because we already had phones that could take pictures and phones that could send emails. And so we were all using BlackBerry devices with the QWERTY keyboards and, and things like that. And so there was not really much of a need, people thought, for this weird-looking, albeit nice-looking, iPhone. But fast forward to today, and we all know what happened. And whether you're an iPhone fan or not, we all know that in time it did become exactly what this article says it wouldn't become. It did become a revolutionary mobile device ushering in a new era. We're all living in the age now of the iPhone. We have 16 years of hindsight, and now we can see why it was so successful. I would say part of it was that eye-catching, sleek design. It was a nice, simple device that people enjoyed even looking at or holding. Another big part of its success was that it was the first phone to have a real internet browser. I can remember using Safari on my friend's phone, having my mind blown, thinking, I can get on the internet on a phone? Before, you could go to mobile web pages and do some a few things online, but you couldn't see normal websites from your phone. And so this was a game changer. It also had an enormous app store with a large library of apps that, and tools and even video games that you could download, most of which were free. And of course, maybe the biggest thing of all, Apple was a name that everyone recognized. It had brand name recognition. And in time, they incorporated features that made it nice to have because you could do other things with it with other iPhone users that anyone else couldn't participate in. Things like iMessage or AirDrop. So this sort of created a cult following for this device. And as it turns out, I've now sold out And I have drank the Kool-Aid, and I now have an iPhone, and I have a MacBook myself. And though it was certainly hard to predict back then, looking back, it all now makes perfect sense. How could the iPhone have not been so successful? It's a brilliant device. History, then, it turns out, has a way of doing this. Things that seemed so unlikely or unclear in the past, now we cannot see them uh, in, in any other way. It seemed fuzzy, but now it makes all the sense in the world. And this morning, I'd like to suggest that this illustration of the iPhone's success is a helpful illustration for understanding what Paul is talking about here when he talks about this so-called mystery in Ephesians 3. A mystery, he says, which he is now a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. And he includes this reminder of why he's a prisoner for them in order to give his words here a proper sense of weightiness, of gravity. Paul is quite literally writing this letter from chains in the city of Rome, and he's in Rome because He was arrested in the city of Jerusalem and taken to Rome, but he was arrested in Jerusalem, we're told in the book of Acts, because he was ministering to Gentiles, particularly to Gentiles in Ephesus. When he was in Jerusalem, he was captured at the temple and people recognized him from Ephesus, Ephesian Jews who were at the temple to make sacrifices They recognized Paul, and they even accused him of bringing Gentiles into the temple, which is not what Paul did. He did not bring Gentiles into the temple. But it is an ironic truth 
that he was accused of bringing Gentiles into the physical temple, which is not the case. But Paul was bringing Gentiles into the spiritual temple, into the church of God. And so they were angry with Paul. They had arrested him and rejected his gospel. They were hard-hearted Jews. Paul calls them even his kinsmen according to the flesh elsewhere in his, in his letters. But they were hard-hearted. They would rejected this Jesus that Christ was proclaiming. They saw Paul's teachings as a threat to their old covenant laws and religions and scriptures and their way of life. And they didn't see what Paul was saying as it truly was, which was the true and glorious fulfillment of all that they had been teaching. And so it's no wonder then that Paul calls this a mystery. Of course it was a mystery to first century Jews. Over long centuries of their existence, they had been trained over the course of time to see outsiders, Gentiles, as exactly that, outsiders. Those who were outside and unclean, outside the scope of God's promises, outside the scope of God's redemptive plan. And then if they wanted to have any hope, the Jews thought if the, if the Gentiles want to have any hope at all for salvation, they will have to do everything in their power to become a Gentile, or to become a Jew, to become like me, up to and including the, the act of circumcision, the covenant sign and seal. And so in short, as far as the ancient Jews could tell, any of these non-Jews would have to do just about everything, spiritually and physically, to be saved. So the thinking was simple then. Gentiles were the worshipers of these pagan deities and pagan gods, and we, we know the story of when Israel comes into the promised land, what are they called to do? They are called to get rid of all these pagan worshiping Gentiles. They're told to clean them out, to make this land a holy land. But they missed along the way God's plan all along. God's plan was not anti-Gentile. God's plan all along was quite different. And so it's no wonder then that given these many centuries of hatred and antagonism that they would be bewildered here now in the first century in Ephesus. As Gentiles, they have to recognize these Gentiles are truly good Christians. They are following Christ. But it didn't quite make sense. And because it didn't make sense to the Jews, it didn't exactly make sense to the, to the Gentile Christians either how they were being brought together into this family. Given all the misconceptions that existed and had been internalized, this was a confusing, difficult situation for the church here. It felt like maybe it was a deviation away from God's plan and not the fulfillment of God's plan. This was something not yet perceived then, and this is why Paul calls it a mystery. In verses 3 through 5, that had now been revealed to him, he says, even though it had never been revealed in this kind of clarity to the sons of men of other generations, as he says. And so in verse 6, in order to dispel any confusion that might, might be remaining and to explain to them that this is truly God's glorious work, it's been his vision all along, Paul finally unveils clearly for them what this mystery is with these powerful words. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. 
From our vantage point today, it's almost hard to imagine that this was ever a mystery. Again and again, throughout the New Testament, the authors of the New Testament reflect on on the Old Testament, and they pick up the themes of the Old Testament, and they see that all along, God's plan was to bless and include Gentiles, for the Gentiles to come in and be blessed. We can think of, for example, God's calling of Abraham, and he says he will be a blessing, through him will be a blessing from all the nations. We can think of the many places in the Psalms where all the nations of the earth are invited to come and worship the Lord. We can think of the prophets who often talk about God's promises covering all of the, earth, the world, all of the earth. And so just like it's now perfectly clear and obvious to us in 2023 how the iPhone was so successful, Paul is essentially here saying, hey, look, though it used to seem impossible to the people of Israel that you Gentiles could be our brothers and sisters, God has now revealed his true intent to us today. You are now a part of God's new covenant, not by some accident or by some divine change in plans. No, you guys, your inclusion among us as members of Israel, the covenantal people of God, has now been the perfect fulfillment of this beautiful plan that God has had all along. And so what are we to make of this then for our context today? How should we think through this news in our time and in our place? But besides the sort of clear and really spectacular revelation that Paul is giving us here, that Gentiles are included in the covenant people of God, how might this text speak to our modern moment? This is the question I've been wrestling with over the course of this week. And I would suggest that a major lesson we can gather here is that it's all too easy, still today, for Christians, us, to think that our faith is something that's permanently or predominantly just for people like me, whatever me is, whoever us may be. And so we think it's just for our ethnic group. It's really our thing, and we can share it with other people, but it's really for us. The basic fact we must remember at all times is that the gospel and our new identity in Christ transcends all other cultural or identity markers. Whether it's our ethnicity, our our sex, sex, our gender, our social status, our socioeconomic status, our interests in different subcultures, whatever it may be. The gospel is the inheritance of all peoples and never the exclusive gift given to people who are only like us. Whoever that weird us is. In the ancient world, it was Christianity that first established a powerful way to overcome the categories and division of humanity into different people groups. Whether these were two different people groups from two different empires, competing empires, or whether they were even different people groups within the same empire, like the Roman Empire, which of course spanned many different lands and had different tribes all included in it. Nevertheless, though, there was still division between them. And so the gospel, the Christian faith is the first thing that broke all these walls down and began to say that no, all people can be brought together into this community. Anyone and everyone from around the world who placed their faith in Christ 
was to be seen as a part of this family. They were a follower of this Lord and this King. They were a part of this new kingdom, a kingdom citizen, if you will. And they were to be seen then as even more of a brother and a sister than our own brothers and sisters by flesh and blood. That's what the church is. You are all my brothers and sisters in ways that I am not connected even to my own biological family. My connections then to my biological family, though I love them, are relativized and deprioritized in comparison to my love and my connections to my church family, to you. The blood of Christ then is thicker than the blood of biology. And it's for this reason that our Lord himself warns us with these words from Matthew chapter 10, which are words that are maybe even difficult for us to hear. He says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. This is the high calling of the gospel. This is the fine print, if you will, of what it means to follow Christ. On the one hand, yes, it's free. It's God's free grace given to you. Not not something you earn. Not something you pay for with good behaviors or good deeds over the course of your lifetime. It's totally free. It's given to you. But that doesn't mean it may not be costly. It may cost you everything. We've just prayed this morning for our brothers and sisters in far-off places who have given their lives for this gospel. It can be costly, and we have to face that. Our allegiance to Christ as God and as our Lord and as our King may at some point then indeed lead us into difficult situations. It may divide us even from our biological families or even our ethnic groups when these priorities come into conflict. When it comes down to a choice to follow Christ or to follow family, there can be no alternative option in the Christian's conscience. We must follow Christ. We have been brought near to God and to one another by the blood. And so again, that blood is thicker and more important than the blood of family, the blood of Christ. And it's for this reason, brothers and sisters, that as a pastor, I have to confess that I have some concern for the Christian Reformed Church of North America. This is not a doomsday prophecy. I'm not saying everything is is caving in. But I I have some concerns about our denomination. Because I think we as as a denomination have struggled in some ways in regards to the idolatry of family and to the idolatry of ethnicity over the years. And while I've caught glimpses of it here and there over the past six years, not very many, I have indeed seen several examples of it this week, and then weeks leading up to Synod. So for those who don't know, Synod is our 
church's annual meeting where delegates from all over the United States meet together for a week and discuss a lot of the big important things that are going on in the life of our church. And this past week we had said it. And so for months uh, leading up to it, there were a lot of conversations taking place, particularly, of course, about the issues of human sexuality. And Over the past few years, this has been a conversation in our denomination. This has been something we've been wrestling with, of course. Um, It's been a difficult time. It's been a contentious time in our denominational family. And any of you who have kept an eye this week on the proceedings of Synod will know maybe what I'm talking about here a little bit. It was a hard week if you're watching. I'll save my sort of full report for another time. A sermon is not the place to get into it. I would say it was a positive week, and I'm, I'm greatly encouraged on the whole, but there were things that I was concerned about. And leading up to Senate, and even on the floor of Senate, one of those things was people's commitment to the CRC because of family. Not so much because of the faith of the CRC, the, the commitments and convictions that we share together. I've seen dozens of articles and speeches expressing grief and frustration from lifelong CRC members lamenting the fact that the church that they grew up in and had been baptized in and had been raising their own kids in was making a decision that to them was exclusive and hateful and that they could not be a part of. And so I heard a lot of arguments, even from the floor of Synod, that sound something like this. I was born and raised, people will say. I was born and raised and catechized in the CRC. And my family, all of my family are still a part of the CRC. My grandparents, my parents, my aunts and uncles, my cousins, all are at CRC churches. I even went, they'll say, to a Christian school. And I went to Calvin or Dort University where I met my spouse. And now that we're married, we're raising our kids in the CRC and sending them to Christian schools. I love the CRC. My whole life is here, they'll say. And so therefore, I would hate to see that this church that I know and love turn its back on Jesus. The Jesus that I was taught to follow and to be now, it's going to be an exclusive church towards those of the same-sex attracted community. For those who want to follow Jesus and live into their gay or bisexual or transgender lifestyle. I've recently heard this kind of approach referred to, actually, by a Dutch pastor in the CRC. He referred to it scathingly as Dutch club language. And I think that's a helpful way of describing it. For many in our denomination, I think it's clear that being a good member of the CRC has more to do with one's Dutch credentials than it does with the gospel itself. Though they consider themselves to be inclusive and welcoming of others, it seems as though they think that the true members of the CRC are those who are born and raised and brought up here, such that anyone else who comes from the outside, like myself, or like the Korean council at the Synod this week, or the Latino council at the Synod this week, they see them as outsiders, almost intrusive and invasive, coming in to corrupt the good thing that had been happening in the CRC. And why is this? I think it's because many of us outsiders over the years have come into the CRC, not because we're Dutch. I'm not. I don't have a drop of Dutch blood. But I've come into the CRC like so many others because I love the biblical and historic faith 
that the CRC holds to, that we claim to believe. And so this is a big debate right now. What does it mean to be a part of the Christian Reformed Church? Does it mean primarily that we share a common ancestral history? Because if it does, we're doomed. Or maybe it means that we share a common faith, shared in our common confessions that we teach and pass on, and in our common way of life together. Therefore, then, the Latinos in our church are welcomed and accepted as brothers and sisters, and therefore the Koreans and the Native Americans as well. Which, by the way, if you watch Synod, you will see these delegations there. And you will see their opinions. And it was constant from the floor of Synod this week. Very interestingly, these different ethnic groups speaking from the floor and saying, if we make this decision to go away from God's word, we don't see how we can be here anymore. Now, we can ask this question. Is it about our ethnicity or is it about our faith? And in some ways, it's a false dichotomy, I I will admit. When it comes down to it, however, it is all about our faith, our shared beliefs as Christians. Above everything else, one's loyalty to the CRC can be examined not by whether or not you were born or baptized or catechized here, but whether you share in the common faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, whether you subscribe with loyalty to the word of God above all things and to the shared convictions which we have together as Reformed brothers and sisters. This is the nature of the Christian faith. As Ephesians 3 is making clear here, our faith transcends our ethnic and our cultural barriers and boundaries. It is a faith for all nations. It's a message of good news for all the peoples of the earth. Christianity has a history, of course, and it even has various histories as it has gone into different nations of the globe. And it has changed and radically transformed nations of this world that it has come into contact with. And so it's not a problem then that the Christian Reformed Church of North America is a mostly Dutch church. It will in some ways be forever tied to its Dutch history and heritage. As a non-Dutch person, I appreciate this. I love this. I love to see what God has done amongst the Dutch nations. But I also love to see what God is doing in the church of Nigeria, where he is giving a testament of his love to Nigerian people, or to the Anglican church, where he is giving a testament of his love to the English people or the church of all the other nations of Japan where he is showing his love to Japanese people. All of these churches have their histories, of course. Not always perfect histories, but histories nonetheless. And their histories point to the glory of the Lord. And so the CRC at the end of the day is not just a denomination or a faith tradition built around its ethnicity. We confess that we are members of the one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church, a church that spans history and the globe. And therefore, unlike the Jews of the first century, we have no right to think of the capital C church, or the CRC even in particular, as belonging primarily to any one people. All those who are part of the church of God belong to one another. And we have no right to act like we have any special claim on our church to the exclusion of other people. We've all been brought in by the grace of God in the exact same way. And so we're all level on that ground. And so this morning, 
I want to summarize my points here by offering some revisions to the famous saying, which I know many of you have heard, and most all of you I know hate, if you ain't Dutch, you ain't much. And I'll offer my revision to make it this, if you ain't Dutch, who cares? You're still family. And I'm thankful that this has been my own experience in this church. I've been told many, many times we hate that phrase. And I pray it's the experience of many more after me. But we will need to continue to remember that God's church is not just for those who look or act or live like us, but for all those who have placed their faith in Christ and are following him with their lives on the way of the cross. And so with all of this now being said and put out there, in our few remaining moments together, I want to turn back to the text and see what Paul has for us there. We've now seen his explanation of the so-called mystery that Gentiles are fellow heirs in Christ along with the Jews. But before we wrap up, I think it's important that we remember to make some observations about what the rest of this passage says. We're going through the book of Ephesians this summer, and so next week won't quite make sense, I think, unless we reflect a little bit here. Uh, this, This chapter, by the way, concludes much of the doctrinal teaching of the book. So chapters 1 through 3 are sort of the doctrinal or theological portion of the book. Starting next week as we begin in chapter 4, we'll be transitioning to the practical or application part of the book, which is quite common in Paul's writing. But as we make these observations, we can start with verses 7 through 12. And here we see that Paul tells us about his calling as an apostle, uh, given the grace of God to make the grace of God known to Gentiles around the world. And so picking up in verse 10, Paul says that God appointed him for this mission to the Gentiles. This is very important. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. This is precisely the point we've seen Paul making over the course of the past few weeks together in Ephesians 2, especially. God sovereignly created the church, his masterpiece, and he has rescued the church from their spiritual deadness, and he has brought the church in from different places of the globe by knitting them all together into one body so that, here he says, for all eternity, the church may display God's glorious grace and power to all the powers of creation, including the spiritual powers of darkness. So he mentions that here, that this will happen when God makes known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. God is showing his power to all the spiritual powers. So in other words, God is engaged in spiritual warfare. This is a theme that will become loud and clear in chapter 6, but it's really a theme of the entire book. The church, then, is God's great demonstration of his victory. And the upshot of this power that Paul wants us to be keyed in on, he wants us to see, is that this powerful God in whom they have boldness and access with confidence through him or through faith in him. So Paul is saying, 
Recognize that God's power is being shown through you, but then recognize also that God's power is in you. Over against the powers of this dark world in which you live. Again, if Ephesus, the city of Ephesus, is a place that was replete with pagan worshiping uh, religions, particularly the religion worship of Artemis and her temple, the temple of Artemis. And so these were people who felt very... Uh, you could say, marginalized in their society, very pushed aside because they were worshiping the one true God and not this, this goddess named Artemis. And so Paul wants them to know this power. And so this leads then perfectly into the final observation we'll make as we come to close our time here. And it's here in the final section, in the verses 20, 20, or 14 through 21, that Paul now offers up another prayer for the church of Ephesus. So he offered a prayer at the end of chapter 1, and now he's going to pray for them again. And he prays on their behalf that they would be rooted and grounded in God's love, and that they would know, quote, the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. They're to recognize that God is in them. He has just told them in the previous chapter that they are now being made into a spiritual house or temple, a holy temple for the Lord where his presence dwells. And so now Paul is adding to that saying the fullness of God dwells in you as the church. And so the reason that Paul prays this is clear. They, like us today, live in enemy-occupied territory, under the tyranny of the one whom Jesus calls the ruler of this world. So if we're going to know our identity and our mission as the church, we will need to know the power and the love of God for us and in us and through us. God is victorious. And yet the battle that we live in still rages on. We, the church, are his beautiful masterpiece, but that doesn't mean we sit back and sit on display doing nothing. It means we now, like Paul, are called and beckoned to participate in the mission of God to the world and his redemptive plans and purposes for the salvation of all the nations, of all the people, as we saw earlier, all the people of different nations, tribes, and languages. And so the apostle concludes this portion of the letter then with the moving doxology to wrap up again this theological portion of the letter begin before he begins to get into the practical part which will begin in chapter 4. And he means this as a great encouragement to these beleaguered Christians. He says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen? Let's pray.